Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Sutton service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Uh, we are kicking off a brand new sermon series today, and it's all about discipleship. What does it mean uh, to follow Jesus? And I want to start by reading a few verses from Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 19. If you've got a Bible, I would love you to turn there. And I see no one turning there, so they're on the screen if you want to follow along. So uh, this is what Luke writes about a famous encounter with a guy called Zacchaeus. He writes this, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Okay, what do these verses tell us about what following Jesus is all about? And I want to look at three things, and we'll look at these three things in more detail uh, over the course of this series. Verse one, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Why is this significant? Well, to understand this, we need to take a step back and look more broadly at Luke's gospel to see his broader point. Uh, Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem and this is a really significant part of Luke's gospel. In Mark's gospel we told in chapter 10 Jesus is going to Jerusalem. In chapter 11, bing, he's there. In Luke's gospel it's very different. We're told in Luke chapter 9 Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Here in chapter 19 he's still on the journey Uh, and this is an image taken from the Bible project which goes into this in a little more depth in I think a really helpful way. And we're reminded again and again and again through these chapters that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He's on a journey. He's on a journey. He's on a journey. And one of the points that Luke is trying to make is that following Jesus is a journey. In other words, when we unpack what following Jesus is all about, this is no microwave meal. There's no one sermon, there's no one prayer, there's no one Bible study that's going to change everything. It's a process, it costs us, it takes time, it's a journey. So if following Jesus is a journey, where is Jesus taking us? Well, I'm really glad you asked the question. Um, Jesus in Luke's gospel is portrayed as something of a Moses figure. This analogy comes up uh, regularly. In fact, at the start of this journey in Luke chapter 9, we're told of a moment called the transfiguration, where Jesus goes up a mountain and something of his dazzling beauty and glory is revealed. And he ends up talking with Moses and Elijah about his journey to Jerusalem that will culminate in, uh, the Greek word is, his exodus. And that word is used very deliberately and there's a comparison that begins to emerge between the Old Testament story of the Exodus and Jesus's journey to Jerusalem in Luke chapters 9 through 19. What happened in the Old Testament story of the Exodus? Well God led his people on a journey a from slavery in Egypt and under Pharaoh's tyrannical rule on a journey through the wilderness to the promised land of freedom. 
That's a picture for the journey that Luke kind of teases out that Jesus is leading us on. He's setting us free from slavery to sin and being held captive to its power on a journey with Jesus of slow and steady transformation to what Romans describes, and I love this description, as the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's the journey that Jesus is leading us on. And here's where it gets interesting for me. In the Old Testament story of the Exodus... Does anyone remember the final city they pass through before they get to the promised land of freedom? Anyone guess? Jericho. The last city they pass through before getting to the promised land of freedom is Jericho. Luke chapter 19 verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. His exodus is almost here. The journey is almost at an end. In fact, it gets there later on in this chapter. And so there's not only a comparison between the Old Testament exodus and Jesus' journey, there is also a comparison between the Old Testament story in Jericho, which comes in the book of Joshua, and Luke chapter 19, this Jericho story here. What's the comparison between these two stories? Well, in each of these stories, there is a journey to freedom, there is a hostile crowd, and there is one very unexpected convert. In the Old Testament Jericho story, that unexpected convert is, we're told, Rahab the prostitute. And interestingly, she's pretty much always referred to in the scriptures this way, even in the New Testament. The book of James, she's given as an example of good works, and she's described as Rahab the prostitute. The book of Hebrews, a long list of names of people who are given as models of faith. And only one of them are we told what they do, Rahab the prostitute. If I was Rahab, I'd want a little conversation with the authors of scripture about this. Like, guys, can you describe me any other way? Like, Rahab the brunette, I'll take that, you know? Rahab the vegetarian, I'll settle for that. Rahab the prostitute, okay. Why is she always referred to this way? Well, the authors of scripture are showing us that God's kingdom is for those that we least expect. Anyone is welcome in his kingdom. Rahab the prostitute and here in Jericho all over again it is Zacchaeus the chief tax collector. Zacchaeus we are told is a small man. Uh, I imagine that detail is inserted to give us a feel for his background, bullied, demeaned, despised, looked down on and now this little guy has got a job where he can get revenge. Uh, He's not just a tax collector, he's the chief tax collector. Uh, We know he defrauded the people because he tells us later on uh, in this passage. In other words, Zacchaeus doesn't really like the people very much and they certainly do not like him. And yet Jesus' kingdom is for someone like him. Uh, Smaller side here, which is slightly off point, uh, but I felt I should insert this. I have noticed that there is a growing trend in our culture to criticise, insult, demean, ridicule, dare I say even overthrow uh, the elites, the successful, the wealthy and those in power. Uh, Often this is done under the phrase speaking truth to power. Uh, Often I find that phrase is used as an excuse to just be mean about people. And I want you to know I understand it. Uh, There are people that have grown wealthy at the expense of those who can least afford it. There are people who have abused the power that has been given to them. Just feel the need to point out Jesus takes a very different approach with this guy that nobody likes. The people that rile and detest us the most in the Jerichos of this world are welcome in the kingdom of Jesus. 
And we know that this is the point that Luke is trying to make because of another weird detail that's included in this story. We're told that this obnoxious little guy climbs a sycamore fig tree to see Jesus. Why not some generic tree? Why the sycamore fig tree? Well, as you can imagine, it's not a tree that features very highly in the pages of Scripture. Uh, Very few at all. But the most recent reference comes in Amos chapter 7 and verse 14. Uh, I know it's a verse you all know very well, but I'll put it on the screen anyway. uh, Amos says this, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. What's this guy saying? He's saying this, I'm a nobody. I'm a shepherd. Like We all know what shepherds, like, like we bring this out every Christmas, smelly, outcasts, no one likes them, and he also takes care of sycamore fig trees. And yet this nothing guy on the fringes of society, God is going to call him to be a proclaimer of his kingdom. This is Zacchaeus. No one likes him. He can't even see Jesus because of the crowd. They're blocking his access to Jesus. And yet Jesus is going to call him to be a proclaimer of his kingdom. Like This is actually, in many ways, the heart of Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke's gospel is often called the gospel for outsiders, those on the fringes, for the poor. And the poor in Luke's gospel is a very broad Greek word, meaning not just those who are financially poor, but those on the outskirts, the edges, the fringes of society, the geeks of this world, the people that nobody likes. Jesus' kingdom is for people like them. And right in the middle of this travel narrative, Luke 9 through to Luke 19, like deliberately right in the centre are three key stories that sum up what this journey is all about. The lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. Like this is Jesus' journey and he says it here in Luke 19. I have come to seek and to save the lost. Like this is the journey with Jesus. He's come for lost people. This is what the journey is all about. He's come for Rahab, he's come for Zacchaeus and he's come for me and you. There's a great story told by Eugene Peterson who wrote the message translation of the Bible. I love his work and he tells the story of walking through Yellowstone National Park uh, full of all these rare beautiful flowers and all these signs up saying do not pick the flowers because they're so rare. And he walks through the park and he sees a little boy like six, seven, eight picking the flowers. So he starts shouting at this boy, oi boy stop it, has a right go at him. Well, this boy stares at Eugene Peterson, wide-eyed and terrified, and the bottom lip starts to go, then the cheeks, and then he bursts into tears, drops the flowers, and runs away. Here's what he writes. He says this, Well, you can imagine what happened next. My wife and kids, my kids especially, were all over me. Dad, what you did was far worse than what he did. He was just picking a few flowers, and you yelled. You scared him. You ruined him. He's probably going to have to go for counselling when he's 40 years old. My kids were right. You cannot yell people into holiness. You cannot terrify people into the sacred. My yelling was a far worse violation of the holy place than his picking a few flowers. Later, I had plenty of opportunity to reflect on this, reminded as I frequently was by my children. I do that a lot. Bluster and yell on behalf of God's holy presence instead of taking off my shoes myself, kneeling on holy ground and inviting whoever happens to be around to join with me. You know, so often I think I am guilty of reducing the Christian faith to a whole load of do's and don'ts. You want to be a disciple? Read the Bible, pray, give your money, serve, cut that behaviour out. And I know there's a place for that. Sometimes I need to be told, Andy, you're wrong. Andy, you need to do more of that. I get that, but I agree with Mr Peterson. You cannot yell people into holiness. 
You cannot bluster them into relationship with Jesus. Like the heart of the Christian faith is I get to have relationship with the creator of the universe through Jesus Christ. And rather than reducing discipleship to a whole list of do's and don'ts, I should be taking off my shoes, kneeling on holy ground and saying, guys, this is awesome, come join me. Like the heart of discipleship is not anything that we do, it's this, he loves us, he wants us. He goes after Rahab, he goes after Zacchaeus, he comes after me and you. Do you need to hear the call of Jesus again? Have you reduced the Christian faith to a whole load of do's and don'ts? No, the heart is him. We get him. That's it. The foundation for following Jesus is he loves us. Do you know Jesus loves you so very, very much? He knows all about your baggage. He knows all about your past. He knows the worst things that you have done and he wants you. And he is calling you again today. Foundation of discipleship is this, he loves us. Number two, learn. Learn, love, learn. And these are the themes we'll be unpacking this term. And by this, I less mean the things that we do and more the posture of our hearts. So when Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming his way, we are given seven verbs in these verses to describe what Zacchaeus does. They're coming up on the screen. We're told he ran, climbed, hurried, came down, received joyfully, stood, said. What the writer Luke is basically doing is he's saying this guy, Zacchaeus, is doing everything in his power to get close to Jesus. Like I got the money, no, I need him. We are only given one verb to describe what the people do. It's not just the religious guys, we're told all the people. It comes in verse 7 and we're told this, they grumbled. And here we have another comparison, a deliberate comparison to the Exodus story. Because on the journey from slavery to freedom in the Old Testament, what did the people of Israel do again and again and again and again? They grumbled. And there's a beautiful twist of comic irony, and I think Luke is really clever here. You see, in the Old Testament story of the Exodus, one of the things they grumbled about the most that caused many of them to miss out on the freedom God had for them were the giants in the land. These scary giants, oh, we can't overcome them, grumble, 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 and they miss out on the freedom. Here in Luke's gospel, they're grumbling about the little guy. The upside down nature of Jesus' kingdom. In other words, what Luke is saying is this, there is a posture of the heart that can cause us to miss out on the destination that Jesus is leading us to, on the freedom that he wants for us as his children. And that posture is this, not realising our own smallness. Not realising our own need of Jesus. Zacchaeus gets it. He's like, I've got the money and I've got the power. It's not working. I need him. The people don't. You know, I I imagine every single person in this room has criticised someone or something. I have. Just to be clear, all criticism, all criticism is indirect self-praise. Now, if if Joy does something and I criticise her, what I'm basically saying is I wouldn't have made that mistake. That's the people here. When they're saying, Zacchaeus, Jesus shouldn't go to his house, what they're really saying is Jesus should come to mine. They don't realise their own need of Jesus. Grumble, 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 and they miss out as a result. A really silly story to illustrate this. (laughs) Really silly. Um, Just before COVID, uh, my mum had like a pension payout and she really wanted to treat the family uh, to a trip to Disney World, Florida. Uh, So we went um, back in 2009 um, 
and uh, got to the airport, hired a big car. Uh, all cars in America are like beasts of cars. We hired this really, really big car. And uh, a couple of days into the holiday, we're in a place called Disney Springs. And I mean, it's this monster of a car. And I'm reversing the car, and I hear it, meep, meep, meep. Look around, can't see anything. Carry on reversing. Meep, meep, meep. Look around, still can't see anything. Carry on re- reversing. And what I haven't realised is because my car's so big, a little nippy sports car has pulled up behind me. And because my car's so big and their car's so small, I can't see it. And my car ends up driving on top of his flashy sports car and basically destroying the front of it. And Joy eventually looks out the window and she sees the flashy sports car and she starts shouting at me with the grace and love of Jesus. And um, I am filled with indignation and self-righteousness. I'm like, I didn't drive into him, he drove into me. And I see this car and I'm like, oh dear, um, pull my car off it. And I'm like, I, I bet it's driven by one of those horrible little wealthy little internet geeks. You know, the type. Uh, by the way, if you know any horrible little wealthy little internet geeks, they're welcome in church. I just want to be clear, okay? So um, I, I pulled my car off his. I, I got out. I see, I see this flashy car. The front is like hanging off. And um, the driver's door opens. And out of the car, um, I kid you not, steps this guy. Um, uh, the photos don't really do him justice. Um, <laughs> He's a multi-award-winning, prize-winning fighter. Uh, to this day, I checked him out a couple of weeks ago, he's trained by a former world champion boxer. And I don't lie when I say he had muscles on his muscles. And he kind of swaggers up to me and says, hi. And I'm like, hi, I kind of said. And uh, he looked at his car and my car and he said, I thought you were going to kill me. And uh, I looked at his muscles and said, I know how you feel. Um, <laughs> And um, he kind of, he, he looks me up and down like this. And um, true story, he goes back to his car, he opens the passenger door, he gets out a pair of boxing gloves and he starts walking towards me. And I'm like, I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm going to die at Disney, which, I mean, as an aside, if I chose anywhere to go, I probably would go there, but just a little sooner than I wanted. So uh, he walks up to me and uh, he tells me his name, which I won't repeat for insurance purposes. But suffice to say, his name's got the word rock in it, which is never a good sign. So he says, basically, you know, my name's Rocky. And I'm like, hi, my, my name's James Copeland. Uh, I, I live in London. Um, um, and he, he waves the boxing gloves in my face and says, what do you think we should do about this? And I've got nothing. I mean, I've got nothing. I'm like, game of Scrabble? I don't know. I've got, I got literally nothing. And he looks at me. He looks at the car. He looks at his utterly ruined sports car. And true story, he says this. He says, well, you know what? I needed a new car anyway. He said, follow me on Instagram, and we can forget this ever happened. Um, well, I'm not on Instagram, but it didn't seem the time to mention that. So I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm on Insta the whole time, me and the Insta kids. No problem. And he got in his car and drove away. And as he drove away, I thought to myself, I could have taken him. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't think that. Now, um, the point of the story is this. (laughs) What's the point of the story? Here's here's the point of the story. Um, In my experience, that is the journey that Jesus will lead us on again and again and again until we get the message. Like, when I got out of that car filled with self-righteousness, not my fault, his fault. Like, when I stood before Rocky, I had nothing. I messed up. I'd done the damage. Like, he could have breathed on me and won the fight. Like, I had nothing. I was just utterly reliant on his amazing grace. That is us before Jesus. That is Zacchaeus before Jesus. The people don't get it. 
They think, oh, I deserve Jesus to come to my house. Zacchaeus does. Do we realise our utter desperate need of God? Like if the foundation of discipleship is he loves me, he calls me. Step two is I need him. Like I'm just utterly desperately in need of his life and mercy and power and grace. Do we, live, do we wake every morning with that sense of need? Like are we here this morning because like I need the life of God or because this is what we do? Foundation is he loves us. Number two is we need him. And just small other aside, which a lot of the commentaries pick up, in terms of the transformation Jesus offers, there's like a secrecy and like a humility to it. What happened in Rahab's life in Jericho to cause her to realise that the gods of her culture are not the real gods and the God of all creation is? Answer, we do not know. What happened between Jesus and Zacchaeus in the privacy of Zacchaeus's home that caused his life to change so much, we do not know. There's like a humility and a secrecy and a hiddenness to the transformation that Jesus brings. It's not about all the externals we do. It's about time spent with him. Do we recognise our need of him? He loves us. We need him. Love, learn. And then the third part is live. We then live out the life that Jesus promises us. Now, what does it look like for Zacchaeus to live out following Jesus? Well, in short, I describe it as this, death to self. We told he gives away half his possessions and then he pays back anyone he's cheated four times over. I mean, he's not going to be left with much. He's giving away all the stuff he's been living for. He's like, I'm not living for that anymore. I'm, like, I'm just dying to all of that. And what interests me is it's only then that Jesus says, now salvation has come. Salvation comes when we stop living for me. It's like our independence and our autonomy. That's the sin that's polluted everything. When we lay that down, that's when we find salvation. And what's interesting is Jesus is literally about to get to his exodus. Jerusalem, he arrives there later on in this chapter. And of course, what he's going to do there is he's going to lay down himself in a very more direct way. He's going to go to the cross. But through laying down himself, salvation will come to anyone who wants it. In other words, what Zacchaeus is doing with his money, Jesus is about to do with his life. And we know this is the point that Luke's trying to get across because did you notice the other thing that Jesus says? He says this, salvation has come, why? Because this guy too is a son of Abraham. Who's the son of Abraham? It was Isaac. Isaac, the one and only son of Abraham, whom God told Abraham to sacrifice. I read a really interesting book over the summer by a theologian called Lois Verberg, a really lovely uh, female writer. It's called Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus, so she's wrote a number of other books as well. And one of the points she makes uh, is this, is that if you read any kid's Bible, and often when you're taught this in church, the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, Isaac is usually depicted as being about 10 years old. Like he's a boy with very little say in the matter. Almost that moment seems like child abuse. Almost certainly, almost definitely, Isaac was a fully grown adult. Uh, in rabbinic traditions, when Abraham sacrifices him, he is 37 years old. Uh, if you look at the dates in Genesis, that's the maximum age he can be. He can't be any older than that. But uh, the rabbis would say he's probably 37. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian from antiquity, would say he's probably 25 years old. Uh, truth is, we do not know. What we do know from the story is he's strong enough to carry all the firewood for the sacrifice. I mean, he's got some guns. Uh, I've got a boy who's uh, 11 going on 12. 
And like all dads and sons, uh, we wrestle because I beat him and it's good for the ego. Um, <laughs> but um, we were wrestling this summer and I'm like, he's not far off being able to beat me. And I know some of you who know me are like, Andy, your seven-year-old daughter could beat you in a fight. She's fierce though. So, uh, um, But the point is this, when Abraham takes Isaac to be sacrificed, he is strong enough to say, no, dad, I'm not doing that. Isaac is the one and only son who willingly lays down his life. And as he's about to give up his life, the angel steps in and says, Abraham, stay your hand. Something else is going to be sacrificed. And Isaac gets back resurrection life. That's Zacchaeus' story. That's your and my story. As we follow Jesus, I'm going to lay down my life for you. We find someone else has been sacrificed in our place. And we get resurrection life and power. This is why Jesus talks about things like serving and giving and confessing our sins and loving our enemies. All the things that make us go, ah, I don't want to do that. Hurt. Death to self. But in doing that, therein we find resurrection, life and power. It's Jesus calling you to die to self again at the start of this journey with him. I guess this kind of begs the question, why on earth should we do that? Why should we die to self? Here's the reason, he loves us. Love, learn, live, love. We come full circle. And the best analogy, and this is imperfect, that I can give is like myself with my kids. Any parent here will know when you have kids, like you give everything, they contribute nothing. Like you do the feeding and the cleaning and the changing, like, like you just do everything. They do nothing. Like even now my kids contribute nothing to the house. Like they do, I, do it, I do it all. But like then they give you a smile and you're like, oh, but I love them so much. Like I lay down my life for them, but you find love in the midst of it. It's what Jesus is inviting us into. Only he's inviting us into a relationship where as we die to self, we find the one who's given up everything for us. We find the transformational love of God. That's what we're being invited into again at the start of this journey. So I just want to ask you a question at the start of this journey, looking at discipleship through this term. Do you know Jesus loves you? Have you reduced Christianity to a whole lot of do's and don'ts? Do you need to know? No, it's a love affair. It's way better than that. Do you need to live again with this posture of the heart, like, I need him so much? Or is there stuff that, you know, I need to die to that if I want to find his love and life and power? Why don't we stand? Can I invite the band up? I'm just going to pray. Um, there will be a prayer team available at the end if you want prayer for anything um, that you're going through right now. Um, but I just want to invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to come. And I just want to give us an opportunity in our hearts to kind of recommit our life to Jesus, if you want to do that. It's just a moment for you to say, Jesus, I hear your call. I need your grace. I give myself. Come Holy Spirit, I ask. We know that you're here already, but I want to ask that you would intensify your presence amongst us in this moment.
You know, maybe you like Zacchaeus. It's like a whole load of other stuff has got in the way of seeing Jesus. Jesus wants to cut through all of that this morning and call you again. I know your name. I'm inviting you into the most wonderful journey. Will you take the next step? Come, Holy Spirit. Where there are areas in our lives that we just need to die to self, we give them to you now. We're not to live for money or for power or for pleasure or for comfort. We want to live for you. It is all about you. You are the centre. You are the focus. You are our captain, our Lord and our King. And we enthrone you again in this moment. We say we hear your call and we respond to it. Heart, mind, soul, strength. And as you look around this room, wherever you see hearts being rededicated to you, fill my brothers and sisters with your presence, I pray. more of your presence Lord Jesus I pray and may this song of worship now be an expression of our love for you and our desperate need of your amazing grace and love and life and power meet us in this moment I pray in the name of Jesus let's worship him together